Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you were asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, seen before, nor will ever be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say. 
I will not see your face again. Because there is none like him, we worship and obey the Lord. We have read a decent chunk of scripture this morning. Personal River Church best, I think. Um, and I hope that as we read, as this continued on, some things jumped out at you. The, the repetition of themes, the, the building of conflict, the intensification sign by sign, plague by plague, as God demonstrates whom it is precisely that the peoples of the earth are dealing with. Because there is none like him, we worship and obey the Lord. That, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, because this story, this story of the plagues, it's, it's awesome. It's amazing. Uh, it's tense, it's gripping, and it hammers away at our sense of the possible and the impossible. Uh, we watch as Egypt is torn piece by piece as its king death grips onto the crumbling edges of his throne uh, and watches it all burn around him, unwilling and unable to change course because that would be even more unthinkable than the, than the chaos that is presently surrounding him. And in this story also, as, as sacred scripture also speaks to us, reveals to us something about who God is and is profitable for our lives. And today, I hope that it reminds us that because there is none like him, we worship and obey the Lord. Because I know for me, um, and, and feel free to search your hearts, um, it, it's very easy to put either one or the other or both feet in the camps of either the Israelites or the Egyptians in the sense that we think God either can't save us or can't stop us or some of both. Um, and in either case, we're terribly, terribly mistaken. And, and I think this happens in small part just because daily life is pretty good and it, and it inclines us to think that way. We, 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 we misinterpret God's forbearance and mercy towards our sin as God's lack of interest in our sin. We, we look at God's common grace of sending rain on the fields of the just and the unjust and misinterpret that as God's disinterest in the concept of justice. The, the gentle prompts of the Holy Spirit are, are shouted down too easily and too readily by, by a world and by, by people who are uh, quick and desirous to justify themselves in their own sight. And we misread this as there being no God at all. And, and even among those of us who, who do believe, those quiet moments, these, these, these spans of time where we are called to wait on God, and that's a theme I've, I've kind of been trying to, to bring before you as we read Exodus, there's a lot of waiting on God. Um, and that should resonate with us because that's a big part of our lives. But these quiet moments where we are called to wait on God far too often become a breeding ground for the belief that God will matter someday, probably after we're dead, and that for now we're on our own. So we've covered a decent amount of biblical real estate this morning, and, and I could point out awesome stuff from those passages all day, just, just like Bill pointed out, but we're not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to keep it on the tracks. So I, I want to highlight for you this morning three things that I think these passages teach that apply directly to us. And, and they are this, in power, God has revealed himself. By nature, God does not fit into boxes. 
And through grace, God makes a distinction. So, as to the first point, God in power has revealed himself. A lot is going on in, in this passage. Uh, but I hope you saw this point, at least, in power God reveals himself happening. I hope that jumped out at you, uh, because it was not subtle. <laughs> um, we've been building up to this moment since chapter 1 of Exodus. As, as the people suffer and cry out to God, God, do something. As, as a young Moses tries to shoulder the burden of saving this people on his own and failing, and, and we as readers ask, who, who can do this? Who can succeed where the strength of men has failed? As, as the voice of God in chapter 3 breaks into history and calls out Moses to serve, and he doubts himself, and, and we doubt ourselves, and we look in the mirror and ask, can even God do something with this mess that I see every morning? As the world hears the good news of God's salvation and responds with terror and oppression to crush the message of hope and by all appearances in chapter 5 I think succeeds does so and despite God's assurance that works and people give up and they despair of ever being saved and as this happens at this moment the moment God always said was coming finally arrives the hand of God comes down, and in power, God reveals himself. The quiet moment is over, and no one is ready for it. Egypt was warned. Israel was reassured, and neither were ready. Israel rejected the comfort. Egypt rejected the warning, and the day still came. Uh, a couple chapters back, uh, Pharaoh asked, Who is the Lord that I should hear his voice and obey him? And as the finger of God descends now on Egypt, multiplying signs and wonders, as the Nile River, the, the tomb of so many of Israel's infants, gives horrific and shocking witness to the bloody crimes it once concealed, as massive boulders of ice crash down from a lightning-torn sky, as the sun itself is blotted out, God answers the question, Who is the Lord? I am the Lord, he says, and there is none like me in all the earth. The plagues themselves attest to this point, I think, uh, in at least two ways, even before God himself provides any direct commentary on the subject. And, and the first way is as a direct attack on the gods of Egypt, on the idolatrous and false beliefs about the nature of natural and supernatural reality that Egypt embraced. They had gods and goddesses for everything and anything that was important. Um, this one handled this, this one does that, this one's in charge of this other thing that's relevant to our, our cultural or social life. Um, and they believed, okay, Egypt is blessed. We've dotted our religious I's, we've crossed our priestly T's, and the system of the universe is going to run fine because, you know, we're, we're maintaining the supernatural status quo. And in power, the Lord strips Egypt of this delusion plague by plague. Who is the Lord? Well, Egypt worshipped the Nile and the god of the river. And they did so because the Nile was a big deal to Egypt. It was the source of their agricultural wealth. It, it irrigated the land. It routinely and safely flooded every season and then receded. It made the farmland nice. It made them rich. It was their means of travel. It was a big deal to them. And the Lord touches the Nile and ruins it. It makes it confess its crimes. 
It takes the symbol of Egyptian order and plunges it into complete chaos. Who is the Lord? Well, for one thing, he is greater than the God of the Nile. Who is the Lord? The, the, in Egypt, the goddess of fertility was represented uh, with frog-like characteristics. And fertility is a big deal for people. Every culture, every age, it always matters. Are our livestock having enough animals to replace them? Can my wife and I have a baby? Are there enough men for the army? And so on. People always care about that. Well, who controls fertility? Is it the Egyptian goddess represented by a frog? At the word of the Lord, a swarm, a mass, a choking, croaking field of fertility rises up from the Nile and covers the land. And they line the streets and they're defecating in their dishes. And then suddenly, all at once, they die and form a stinking, massive pile of rotting flesh that are plowed into pillars uh, to get rid of. And we ask, who truly controls fertility? Who is the Lord? And plague by plague, this goes on. As, as God comes up against yet another Egyptian god or, or aspect of Egyptian life and shows himself to be its complete and utter superior. And, and for the moment in our passage, it culminates in God blotting out the sun for three days, dethroning Ra, the sun god, king of the gods of all of Egypt. God doesn't just reveal who he is in the plagues. He doesn't just give the Egyptians a beat down, although that totally happens. Um, but, but in a move that's both ironic and extremely significant, and to be honest, a little bit funny, uh, looking in the past, the judgment takes the form of an ongoing object lesson. The Egyptians ask, who is this God of the Hebrews? And the answer is, a God greater and more powerful than any God man has ever dared to invent for himself. And the Israelites ask, who is this God who claims to be the God of our fathers? And the answer is, a God that is greater than all the gods of your captors. The, the second way that the plagues themselves, just by what they are, by what they do, attest to the singularity of God, that there's none like him in all the creation, is because in these plagues, we see amply demonstrated that we're dealing with a being, a person, who is not just in the creation, but is in fact its creator. In, in reading this passage, we're confronted, just as the Egyptians and Israelites were, that the power that had come among them, the finger of God, wasn't a desert delusion of Moses, wasn't a, a convenient political excuse to agitate for more freedom for this slave group. It wasn't just one more tribal spirit or religious tradition. The Lord of all creation himself had come down in judgment. The water of the Nile is turned against them. The creatures of both the ground and the air are sent against them. The dust of the earth itself and the sky above and the heavenly bodies beyond. All existence, all creation at the command of the Lord rise up and become spears of war and judgment in the hands of the earth's rightful master. And throughout it all, God through Moses and Aaron provides a running commentary on, so that no one can possibly miss the point. Uh, 822, so that you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. 914, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 929, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And interestingly, uh, it's pointed out directly in 915, because there's an implication to all of this, this is intended to be instructive. If this was just about judgment or just about freeing Israel, God says, I could have just killed you with a pestilence, dropped you with a disease, boom, one and done, Israel wanders out, kind of confused looking, uh, and it's over. But it 
doesn't happen that way. God isn't going to let the moment of power pass without revealing who he is. The one greater than every God forged by human hearts and hands, the Lord of creation and indeed himself, its righteous creator, God Almighty, Yahweh the Lord. Not only will Pharaoh not prevail, but it is the Lord who will determine how slowly and how publicly he loses. And what's interesting is this, this instruction, this, this, this object lesson, it's not just for the Egyptians. The Israelites are watching and God is making it clear, this is happening so that you will know who you're dealing with. So that you will know how serious it is when years from now a prophet comes to you and says, thus says the Lord. This is happening so that you will tell this story to your children and they will tell this story to their children and you will forever remember what happened here, who did it, and what it means. People of Israel know the Lord, know that he is strong enough to save you. That's what God is shouting down at them through the thunder and the fire. And the timelessness of this lesson should not be lost on us. We, we retell this story to one another. We, we read all those words uh, uh, for the same reason that the Israelites did, to remind us who we are dealing with when we talk to God, when we talk about this God of the Bible. We are not dealing with a God unable to stretch out his arm and save. God tells himself about us through so many different means. Uh, Hebrews 1 talks about that a little bit, actually. Um, we, we do hear quiet internal promptings from the Holy Spirit. Um, we see the brushstrokes of God in the beauty of the natural world. We, we look up at the stars and, and wonder at the nature of the God who has numbered them and knows them by name. And this is all true. And, and scripture itself is, of course, a vast and treasured deposit of God's self-revelation to us. Just in Exodus, up to this moment, God has shown us his compassion and his kindness and his patience as he deals with the halting faith of Moses. Um, he, he's shown us his faithfulness as, as he calls himself forward to, to answer, to fulfill promises that no one living remembers, but that he has decided to honor regardless because that's just who he is. We've, we've seen his nearness to us, even unseen, even working in the background of history to bring his saving purposes to fulfillment. And as the finger of God descends over Egypt, we see another side of God. We see him in power. We see him in power reveal himself. And it is a little scary, and it should be. As, as one early Christian poet put it, day of wrath, O day of mourning, see fulfilled the prophet's warning. Later in Israel's history, the prophet Amos will, will denounce Israel for its sins, will, will, uh, its crimes against the weak and the poor and the powerless. He will enumerate all the ways they've sinned against the covenant that God will establish with this people upon the completion of the Exodus and against the holiness of God. And, and Amos wraps up chapter 4 by declaring, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And anyone who remembers the story in Exodus will have an idea what that will look like and will immediately be in need of a new pair of pants. <laughs> and this side of God is rightfully terrifying, but it is absolutely essential to his character and to our salvation. Because the people of Israel were not going to be freed by speeches, by agitation, by protest. As, as we've read these chapters, I hope you've gotten a sense of the character of Pharaoh and people like him, 
And you can see in, in this unbelief, this blind, stubborn commitment to one's own twisted sense of pride, that there will be no message that he hears but the message of power. A trivial view of God will lead to a trivial exercise of our faith. If God seems small to us, if, if he seems irrelevant to the nitty-gritty details of our life, or, or even the, the great weights and pains and burdens that this life brings us as we, that the plagues our days on this earth, if his arm does seem shortened and unable to save, I urge you to consider the finger of God over Egypt. Envision the staff of God going up and judgment coming down. See the dust from the kilns in Moses' hand, the, the brick dust of the Israelites' toil and slavery being blown by God's wind and going into the air and being transformed into saving, terrible, glorious judgment. The God you serve loves you, yes, and he is wise and compassionate and good and faithful and all of these wonderful things, and he is also cosmically, consummately powerful. That's who we pray to. That's how we, who we pour our cares and our fears and our hopes out to. May that be a comfort to you. May your view of God be so untrivial that you lead a life of faith that reflects an inner conviction that the God you serve is indeed as great as advertised. In power, God has revealed himself, yes. In a sense, however, just on its own, the exercise of power isn't something with which the, either the Egyptians or the Israelites would be unfamiliar. In and of itself, the, the raw exercise of power is nothing terribly new, and that's sort of where our second point comes in. By nature, God doesn't fit into boxes. What do I mean for, by that? Now, I like huge words. I wanted to say, God doesn't fit into existing human paradigms. Um, but I was pretty sure you'd all just chuck rocks at me if I did that. So we're going to go, God doesn't fit into boxes. And it's a, and it's a better picture, and I'm glad it happened. Um, God is powerful, yes. But so was Pharaoh. So presumably were the gods of Egypt. At least that was the understanding. The Lord might be more powerful than them, but if you're just looking at power, you might make the mistake of assuming that God's power was fundamentally no different from that of the gods of Egypt or of Pharaoh himself. Maybe he had more of it. Maybe he was, you know, just the bigger kid in the classroom at that moment. But you might assume that his power was of the same sort and kind, that we were dealing with things in a similar category. And, and we see in this section that despite the mental boxes, the, the interpretive categories that the people of Egypt try and fit the Lord into, none of them fit. God won't stay any of them, in any of them. None can contain the complete character of God, and all of them end up shattering on the edges of his singular nature. Now, now this one is a little bit more complex, so just stick with me. When Moses comes to Pharaoh with the message of God, Pharaoh reacts according to the existing supernatural metaphysical paradigm that he possesses. The first thing Pharaoh assumes is, okay, Moses is coming telling me about this, the Lord guy, um, the God of the Hebrews, a lowercase g God like any other. I've got 20 on my shelf. I'm the deified representative of one of them. Okay, this is a thing. I understand it. And so when God does come revealing himself in power, Pharaoh responds 
by marshalling the political and supernatural power that he commands, that's at his disposal. He summons the magicians. He says, okay, you got a magic stick. That's cool. I've got five guys with magic sticks. What you gonna do about it? Um, it, He assumes that he's dealing with something that he understands. Now, the whole sub-narrative of the magicians is very interesting, uh, and it also makes our first point that, that God and power is revealed himself, um, because just like with, with Egypt as a whole, we see God slap the magicians around in, in ironic and entertaining ways, but it's not just that. They, they try to go toe-to-toe with God and fail, yes, but it's in the evolving human response to God's display of power, that this second point, that God doesn't fit into boxes, it's through watching the people respond to what God is doing in power that the second point really begins to mature and develop. God turns the water of the Nile into blood. And in, and in 722, Pharaoh summons the magicians and they're able to replicate the effect by their sorceries. And it seems like this comforts Pharaoh as we read 722. This happens and he's like, ah, good. Because the magicians are able to replicate the fact he hardens his heart and he does not listen to Aaron and Moses. And this is interesting because I think here we see Pharaoh's relief as he's able to mentally put God in a box. Okay, Moses could do this, but so can my guys. This is explicable. This is replicable. There's some part of this I can feel in control of so I don't have to listen and I don't have to change. The magicians were able to, in Pharaoh's eyes, bring God down to an understandable, manageable level. But this is at the beginning of the plague cycle, and things go downhill for Pharaoh from there. Um, you heard the saying that nature abhors a vacuum. Well, God's nature abhors a box. Um, quickly, things start to unravel for Pharaoh's cozy view that the God of the Hebrews is just like any other God. The second plague comes, and the magicians are once again able to enact a facsimile of the original miracle. But this next time, Pharaoh doesn't seem to draw any comfort from it like he did with the first plague. Um, And you can't help but wonder, maybe he realizes that just making even more frogs come up isn't actually helping anything. (laughs) Then as the third plague comes, the magicians try mightily to recreate it, and they fail. Uh, In 718 and 19, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So they were gnats on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the, the magicians are on the front line of this battle opposing God. And, and plague by plague, they become disabused of the notion that they were dealing with something that they understood. Something different had come, something that didn't fit into any of their existing boxes about how the universe operated. And the magicians, at least, begin to sense, begin to understand that what has come over Egypt is nothing less than the finger of God. And once they come to this realization and share it with Pharaoh, another irony ensues. Uh, In the first plague, Pharaoh won't listen to Aaron and Moses. By the third plague, Pharaoh won't listen to his own magicians. By the sixth plague, the plague of boils, or I'm sorry, at the first plague, it was the magicians who stood up. It says they rose up uh, against Moses and by extension God. And by the sixth plague, the narrator tells us the magicians cannot even stand racked by the pain, pain of the boils of the sixth plague. Pharaoh thought that because he commanded magicians of incredible power and ability that he had the entire supernatural world under his control. 
that it was manageable, that, that he understood how things could and could not work, and if anything got cattywampus, he had a magical guy for that. No big deal. And, and we can, as we read, we can sort of share in, in the magician's slowly dawning horror as they realize, they begin to see that, in fact, the Lord of all creation does not play by the rules that we write for him. When we try to put God in a box, he might just make that box explode catastrophically just to illustrate how far we've missed the mark in understanding who it is that we're dealing with. I think the other way that we see this point, that, that by nature God doesn't fit into boxes, is in Pharaoh's attempts to negotiate. Because even as everything is falling apart, Pharaoh still cannot wrap his mind around who he's dealing with. He responds as if Moses was some guy who, who had a temporary advantage in the current political situation and, okay, maybe we can make a deal. So once the magicians are down for the count, Pharaoh himself tries to be, be in and, and step in and, and make some deals. Okay, your God is more powerful than we expected. We didn't see that coming, but fine. I see your point. And so he starts offering a little bit. How about you sacrifice in the land of Egypt? How would that be? Everyone's a winner. He tries to barter with God as if he were dealing with a rug merchant. Pharaoh thinks he's still in a situation where he has some cards to play, where he still has some chips to cash in. And he's profoundly mistaken. God demands obedience. God demands unconditional surrender. There was only ever one request, and it hasn't changed. Let my people go. And as the plagues continue, Pharaoh gets more desperate. How about just the men go? They're the ones who are going to do the religious ritual stuff anyway. God's counteroffer, all your livestock dead. You're not in charge. Okay, take the kids and the women too, but leave the animals. Moses' response, not a hoof shall be left behind. And as this happens, we see hints that parts of Egypt are starting to get it, even if Pharaoh isn't. The magicians acknowledge the finger of God. Pharaoh's own advisors push him. Let him go. The country is ruined. How long are we going to let this guy destroy us? The people of Egypt who, who develop a fear of God as they see this happen, when they hear that the hail is coming, they move their animals and their guys under shelter. They begin to understand, at least on some small level, who they're dealing with. Will we? For, for us, is it like in the case of Egypt that we lack information about the uncontainable, unsurpassable character of God? Possibly. I suppose for most of us, our, our danger is actually too much information, or at least too much familiarity with it. Have, have we become so familiar with God, so comfortable with him, that we think we have him in a box? That, um, that we keep him safely contained between the covers of our Bibles, to be let out as needed and beneficial for us moment by moment. We live in an era of unprecedented wonders. Um, science and technology have done things to where the miraculous is now commonplace. The, the cell phone in everybody's pocket is a quasi-magical science fiction Star Trek device. It's insane. Um, as I was preparing for this series, I, I read this commentary. I read several, but this one was interesting. It, it took great pains to explain, to explore, how the plagues were scientifically possible. And, and he goes through this list of, well, it might have been this, it might have been this, but when the Nile turned red, it might have been a red algae bloom or clay runoff from this place here. And the boils might have been anthrax. And this other thing was, I don't know, mutated asbestos poisoning, whatever. The, the point was, he, he does all this work, and I suspect that he misses 
the plain meaning of scripture. Uh, starting in the, the 19th century, we, Western society, we really jumped on the Enlightenment bandwagon uh, about human reason and all these good things, and we started getting uncomfortable with God not fitting into our science box as we understood it. Uh, we love our science box. Our cell phones come out of our science box. It's awesome. It's big. It's beautiful. It does wonderful things for us. We also get to control it a little bit. That's nice. God, would you please just get in the box? When, when we try to reverse engineer how God saved his people, we run the risk of missing out on the fact that he did save his people. I think when we go down that road too far, and, and I mean, you know, curiosity is great. I love talking about this stuff as much as the next guy. But when we go down this road too far, I wonder if sometimes we become like the useless magicians, recreating more of the bad thing we already have enough of, but not being able to do anything about it. Okay, you, you, you recreated the play, good job. Um, you didn't make anything better, but I, this has given you psychological and emotional cover to ignore what's actually happening. Good job, you. God won't stay in any of our boxes, even our best ones. He's bigger than any of them. He's logically prior to any system we can devise or observe in the natural world. Science is downstream of God's nature. Our Bibles are downstream of God's nature. They provide a faithful and accurate revelation of that nature, but don't mistake the photograph for the real thing. Um, as as C.S. Lewis was, was apt to observe in his Narnia books, he is not a tame lion. Where in our lives are we trying to box in God? I suppose that's the, the question for us today as far as this goes. Just for example, have, have we informed God in no uncertain terms by certified mail that prophecy of tongues has ceased, so he just has to be done with those miracles. He can't do them anymore. Um, deal with it. Or can, can we envision, even envision God doing anything that would surprise us? Or do we think we know what he can do, how he will do it, and if anything happens that doesn't fit inside our accepted parameters, Will we miss it entirely? Do we think we have God weighed and measured? And we are blessed with the revelation of God contained in the Bible uh, that he's chosen to share with us. But if we don't understand that on some level we're dealing with a person who is so above and beyond us as to stagger our minds, we run the risk of thinking we can negotiate with the Lord of all creation. So I, I would encourage you, let God be huge. Let him be indescribable, incomparable, alien, other. Let parts of him be beyond and above understanding. Beware the God that fits on a shelf physically or mentally. There's a word for those. It's idols. God doesn't live in houses made by human hands. The God you worship doesn't barter or negotiate with the forces of evil to save you. He just does it. There's no one and nothing like the God we serve, and that itself is cause for worship. And I'll just be super Baptist for a moment. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> Thank you. The third point, through grace, God makes a distinction. This, this point is the simplest. It'll be the shortest, and, and for our immediate selfish purposes, it's the most important. Who's on God's side when our section starts? It's a shorter list than you might think. Moses and Aaron. 
And God kind of had to drag Moses there. Um, but, but let's count him on God's side. And I bring it up because it's very easy to be very dualistic in our thinking as we read this section. Okay, we've got the Israelites over here. They're the good guys, right? God's here to save them. And you've got the Egyptians, the bad guys over here, right? I, I don't know if it's as simple as that. God did come to save the people of Israel. Yes, he's, he's not shy about that fact. Was it because they were good? Yeah, the pressure was on them, but they gave their children to the Nile. Yes, the Egyptians beat and oppressed them, but we read in chapter 2 how they beat and oppressed one another. Yeah, Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians rejected the news of salvation that Moses brought, but so did the Israelites, at least after Pharaoh turned the screws on them a little bit. We read back in chapter 6, they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. As, as the story in our present passage begins, Egypt and Israel are morally indistinct. Egypt might be hitting harder because they have the upper hand right now, but if things were different, switch the roles, you'd just have the same story with different looking hats. There are no good guys here. God has purposed to save this people. And as the story of our passage starts, they don't have any particular interest in being saved, or at the very least, they have serious doubts about whether Moses knows what he's talking about when he says that salvation is coming. But from the fourth play forward, we start to see something interesting. God draws a line. God puts a wall between Israel and judgment. The flies will be everywhere except Goshen, where Israel is living. The livestock will die, but not Israel's. Hail will fall, but not on Israel. The sun will go down and stay there, but not for Israel. Why? If, if both groups are just rotten schmucks, why bother? Why not let the lightning come down where it deserves to? Because through grace, God makes a distinction. He separates the people of Israel from the people of Egypt. Through, through no merit of their own, he sets his love on them. Claims them as his people, his sons and his daughters, morally, qualitatively indistinguishable from the Egyptians. God makes a distinction anyway out of self-initiated grace, out of the outpouring of mercy that just is who he is. And this should shock us. Not just because it's completely undeserved, but as we consider the matchless power of this God who has revealed himself, as we consider his uniqueness, his category-defying, paradigm-exploding transcendence, we should be amazed that the finger of God has bent so low as to lift up the, the broken and the sinful and the least among the children of men. Who is the Lord indeed? And yeah, this isn't fair. Our, our culture doesn't like distinctions, drawing a line even for the cause of mercy. Uh, more on that next week. But as we read this passage again and again, God speaks as judgment falls and says, this is so you will know that I am the Lord. And it was a message for the Egyptians and for the Israelites, and I believe for us today, this is who God is. A God who grants reprieve time and again in the face of obstinance and false repentance. A God whose plan of salvation cannot and will not be derailed even by the weaknesses and failings of the people that he has purposed to save. And this surely is a story for us because God's purpose hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. And in this modern age, we've come to see the fulfillment of the promises that seal God's saving work. 
if we're having any doubts about the relevance of God in our lives, if, if, if we wonder whether this, this plague-slinging Old Testament God has any continuity with our own experience, if we find ourselves asking who is the Lord, we need to look no further than Jesus. When Jesus came, he revealed himself to us in part just as God always has in power. His miracles confounded his enemies. They didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know what to do with the, the exercise of divine authority that no man should have. He, he broke the boxes of what they believed was possible by confronting them with something unthinkable. The finger of God, in fact, the entirety of God, the Lord had descended to earth and was with them. In, in Luke 11... Uh, 14 through 22, we kind of get a snippet of this conflict. Um, speaking of Jesus, Luke writes, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, prince of the demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There, there was a dividing line drawn by the power of Jesus, by the category-defying nature of Jesus that, that didn't allow you to reconcile what he was doing, how he lived his life, and, and what he was capable of with the idea that he was mistaken, that he was less than he claimed to be, that, that he was one more fraud or imposter or, or uh, villain like the magicians. You had to deal with the fact that either the devil is really bad at his job uh, and shoots himself in the foot, or that Jesus is, in fact, the very finger of God come down to earth in power, revealing the complete revelation of God in himself as himself. The Lord of creation had entered the creation. The, the Savior had come to save, making distinction by grace alone and through the power of his blood. That's the story of the gospel. That's why we're here every week. That's why we can come before God and sing that he is for us and not against us, that he is mighty to save. And, and, and though God, yes, is transcendent and above us and high and holy and in, in many ways unknowable, we see in Jesus the power of God and, and we see the face of the high and holy transcendent Lord of creation made like us in the face of Jesus. The, the impossible to comprehend and to contain becomes relatable. That's how low God stooped to save us. That's how far God has gone to have fellowship with us, to reach out to us. A story matters because who God is matters. A story matters because Jesus is Lord. And as we wait for him to return at, at the end of the ages, coming once and for all in the complete power of God, any illusions we may hold about a tame lion fail quickly. They evaporate as we contemplate the power and majesty of the God who judged the gods of Egypt, who, who taught and to this day teaches the world 
that he is Lord and on whose gracious mercy we must daily cast ourselves. We must obey and worship this Lord because there's none like him. There's none before him. There's none above him. Our matchless Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray and forever worship, amen. God, our Father, we thank you for your greatness. We thank you for your mighty hand. We thank you that you have not left us where we chose to be, where you found us, where we were lost, where we were kept captive. But that by the blood of your Son, we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We thank you that you have given us a hope and a help for a reason to persist in the face of adversity because you can overcome any obstacle. That, that whenever we think we understand you, that there is more of your riches to search out. That you cannot be contained by anything we've made with our hands, but that you've come to live in our hearts, a temple that you've built, that you've knitted together. God, we thank you for all that you've given us and all you've done for us. And it is in your great and matchless name that we pray, amen.